Now, oftentimes, when you graduate, what you kind of think is you're kind of finished with something. Like, oh, I'm done. Oh, all this relief. Maybe, maybe you had final exams or, or whatever, and you're like, this is great. And then what happens? You go on to the next thing, right? So I was homeschooled, so I didn't have any, like, kindergarten graduations. Apparently, I needed to talk to my mom about the lack of those. But uh, I, I did graduate from sixth grade because I went to school halfway through sixth grade. And so you get through sixth grade, and you're like, ah, oh, good, I accomplished something. And then, of course, you go to seventh grade, right? It's basically the same thing. And then you graduate from high school, and either you realize you got to go to college, or maybe even worse, you have to start working, all right? One of those things start happening, and if you, of course, graduate from college or master's, it never ends. There's always something else. And, you know, as the same way that graduations really aren't the end of anything, they usually kind of a transition into a new thing, the same way when our author Luke was talking about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, the book of Luke, and then he gets the ascension, the ascension into heaven wasn't the end of something. It was really the beginning, in some ways, of something new. And that is what we're going to talk about today in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1, in which Luke transitioned from Christ. He reviews what he talked about in Luke, and we're going to talk about how he moves from his ascension to what we need to be doing as a church. So the book of Acts connects to the book of Luke in like many, many different ways. There's probably at least five main ways. I'll just give you a couple. Um, at the beginning of Luke, it talks about Jesus being alive and active. He talks about the promise of the Spirit. You know, in, the, in Luke, it talks about the promise of the Spirit. Then here in Acts, at the very beginning, it's kind of the fulfillment of that. And there are many other ways it connects the two. So let's go ahead and jump in here to verse 1. It says, in the book, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so this person, Theophilus, that he's writing to is who also who he wrote the book of Luke to. We don't really know who he is. Okay, we don't really know much about him, but here's the guess. Okay, you ready for the guess? This is who we think he might be. We think he might be well off, and we also think what he might be is someone who is really struggling on whether or not to either become a Christian or whether or not they should remain a Christian. So therefore, Luke writes Luke to tell him about Jesus Christ, and then he writes about this history of what happened at the beginning of the church kind of as a way of providing evidence to this Theophilus to be able to demonstrate to him that he should really either remain in the faith or that he should become a part of the faith. And so as we continue with Book of Acts, I'd like us to think about something I said last week. And, you know, the Book of Acts often is called the Act of the Apostles, which is probably not a too good name because it's more about the Acts of the Holy Spirit in a lot of ways. But if you really want the long version, it should be something much longer, like, um, the, you know, the, the spread of the gospel through the, uh, by the Holy Spirit through the disciples. That's probably what it should be called. But that's way too long, right? I just can never remember that. You get the really good name of the book that would really be really descriptive. It's too long. We got to shorten it down. You know why we got to shorten it down? Because we can only remember things about as long as a meme. You guys know what a meme is? Let me help you. This is a meme. Here's to all the memes that make us smile, right? You have a picture, and then there's some sort of 
funny thing that goes along with it. And I decided to really help us understand how we only understand short things. I decided to make a few memes. And I blame Steve for all the memes that I made. And then I did a few of the graduates. I Believe it or not, I didn't do mine, because you can understand why. When you're eating those s'mores, mom says no, dad said yes. If you can't tell, that's Rachel when she was a little girl. And then, I mean, why do we put the man in the drum cage? He's looking so good. I don't know. So we often kind of like something short. So if you're going to have something short, I think the act of the apostle or the acts of the Holy Spirit is probably a pretty good way to provide a short name because anything longer at some point you're never going to remember it. And so as we walk through, I think we're going to be seeing here what the Holy Spirit has done. So we go on to verse 2. It says, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Alex, where did you go? Could you come here for a second? Could you restart this for me? Thank you. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm really distracted because that's not working correctly, and so I can't, I can't think right. So there are about 10 appearances of Jesus that we know of. So to the woman at the, in, in the tomb, to Mary Magdalene, the Emmaus disciples, Peter in Jerusalem, the 10 disciples, the 11 disciples, the 7 disciples fishing in Galilee, the 11 disciples in Galilee, the first 100, and James, the Lord's brother. So he appeared about 10 times. So he presents himself to the people, but he probably didn't actually remain with them 40 days. Like they didn't hang out for those 40 days. It seems like he appeared to them for 40 days. And this is the kind of proof that Theophilus needed because you think to yourself, what kind of proof does the Old Testament require in order for something to be true? We learned in Deuteronomy. You need more than two or three witnesses, correct? And so in order to have two or three witnesses, Luke is providing these witnesses and he gives the examples of these many proofs of what Jesus Christ had done. And while staying with them, and he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. Now, I better stop talking just for one second, or I'm going to... The promise of the Father is the Holy Spirit. So you remember in Luke, and it's also in John, it's also in Joel... It's also in Isaiah, this promised Holy Spirit is going to come. So he says, uh, the, the promise which the Father now gave you is now coming. And so this is being a part until the Spirit is poured upon us on high. That's a reference in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. So when you are thinking about the Old Testament and what was promised to the people of the Old Testament, and you get to the book of Acts, we're going to start running into some really, really difficult situations. Some really difficult situations. 
And I want you to think about it with me like this. Think about all the promises that were given to Israel. Land, great river Euphrates, the river Nile, seed, blessing. And those are the big ones. Those are like the big categories. There's actually many other blessings, right? I promise I'll bring the nation of Israel back together. One day you're going to be together again. You're separated now. The north and the south are split, but don't worry. One day you'll be unified together again. I'll bless you. You'll defeat your enemies. And another thing that he promises them in the Old Testament is the Spirit. He mentions the Spirit coming. And of course, the people, when they read it back then, probably like had no idea what that was a reference to or what that meant. And so what we have to do as New Testament believers, as we read the book of Acts, we have to try to understand how these promises given to Israel relate to us. Are we supposed to have the land from the great river phrase to the river Nile, the church? Are we fulfilling the promise that the north and the south are back together? I mean, if you look at the promises, it seems like it, they almost are impossible to be fulfilled without the existence of the temple. I don't, there's no temple in Israel. They're not worshiping there. They're not offering any sacrifices. They can't do the sacrifice in the temple. So how are we actually going to fulfill these promises? This is a very hard problem. And let me give you the simple way to describe it or to answer the problem that I disagree with. I went with a complicated solution. The simple way is this. Israel is God's people. The church is God's people. We're all God's people. And we're all kind of the same thing. And therefore, the promises given to Israel are given to us just like they were given to Israel. And though, uh, so when you kind of get to the whole land thing, what we usually, usually would say is something like, well, it's not actually land. It's just, you know, something more like a spiritual sense. Okay? When he says he's going to bring the north and the south, the tribes of Israel, back together, what, what he really means is something more like, well, in a spiritual sense, there's going to be unity or something like that. I'm not sure. I don't take this view, so I'm not going to describe it as well as I should probably. So that's one way to deal with it. Another way to deal with it is something like this. It's complicated. It's complicated. Yes, God gave promises to Israel. Yes, the church has something to do with those promises. It's not like we have nothing to do with them completely. But we're not exactly the same thing. We're something different. And though we're related, and there might be some intertwining together, it's complicated, right? It's complicated. We're not just some sort of single entity. And that's what I'm going to argue with, for as we go through the book of Acts. If you would like big names for these things, usually someone who would say they're all the same thing would be someone who would be like, Reformed or amillennial. You might use those terms to describe it. Some of you, these terms are not helpful at all. If you think of it more like I do, you would be more like, I'm like a progressive dispensationalist. 
that helps you. I'm sure it doesn't, so you're welcome for that. <laughs> Maybe a dispensationalist or something like that. But the real core problem is what to do with this nation of Israel as we transition into the church. This is a big transition. This is super hard. And there's promises in the Old Testament that we're going to be dealing with. And so let's go on. For John the Baptist, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So now he's referencing, he's talking, okay, I talked to you in Luke about John's baptism, you know, and he says this is a preparatory baptism. So there was this water thing back then, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And this, this creates a whole new set of complications. How many baptisms are there? There's not one. There's at least two, right? There's John's baptism that he baptized with water. And then there's the Holy Spirit baptism. So when you read the New Testament and you says, be baptized. Well, which one are you talking about? And actually, as we go through the book of Acts, we'll get find it's even more complicated. There's John's baptism, which is different from the baptism of like the church or whatever, and then there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we'll actually end up getting three. So, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is the promise not many days from now. This is the promise that had come from the Father. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Oh, boy. Think about it. Jesus dies. He raises from the dead. They didn't expect that. That was a big shock for the disciples. That, whoa, that, we weren't thinking that. We thought he was going to be like the king, right? When he came riding in on the donkey, he was going to like to take the Romans over, and he dies. We're not, we're, that was a shock. But guess what? He rose again. So now what is he going to do? We didn't expect that whole die and raising thing, but surely now the kingdom of Israel is being restored. And you say, well, how stupid can they be? You know, they, they keep thinking it's going to be restored. They're not stupid. They read the Old Testament. Guess what it says in the Old Testament? The kingdom of Israel is going to be restored. That was the promise. They're not making this stuff up. They are talking about a promise. And so you say, well, this is very interesting. What is the answer going to be to this question? Is the kingdom of Israel going to be restored at this time? Because if the answer would be something like this, yes, the kingdom of Israel is being restored. Guess what that would probably mean? The people that see Israel and the church as one people of God and the same thing would be right, probably, right? Because if the church is restoring the nation of Israel, yeah, I guess they're the same thing. So you say, so what's this answer? Is Jesus now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, he doesn't answer the question. This is really disappointing. He seems to kind of, he doesn't say yes, and he doesn't say no. He says, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He says, you are too worried about the time that this is going to happen. You are fixated on when this kingdom of Israel is going to be sorted, and you need to quit worrying about that. So while I agree that this verse doesn't say that I'm right, that it hasn't come particularly, right? He doesn't say no or yes. 
I think this fits with the more complicated explanation, in my opinion. But we'll see. It was not for you to know the times and seasons. They were so worried about this particular time was going to take place. But what Jesus is trying to focus them on is not what is going to take place when Israel is restored, but what they are supposed to be doing in the meantime. I'm going to argue what we're saying here is, no, it's not restored yet, and you need to be worried about what you're supposed to be doing while you're waiting. And that's what you should be worried about. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So, he says, what should you be doing while you're waiting for the kingdom of Israel to be stored? You're supposed to be receiving the power of the Holy Spirit, and you're supposed to be witnessing to the people in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. And that's what they do, right? The book of Acts is the story of that. It's not perfectly chronological. It's not like Israel, uh, Jerusalem is first, and then it goes out and goes out, but it kind of goes back to Jerusalem. And the way the book of Acts ends, it actually ends in Rome. And the reason it probably ends in Rome, you say, well, Rome's not the end of the world. Well, it's, it's, it's technically not the end of the world. That's true. But Rome was the way that you got to the end of the world. All roads lead to Rome, right? All roads lead to Rome. And so if you wanted to go out to the rest of the world, why that was not accomplished during the time period of the book of Acts, the book of Acts says, we've made it to Rome, we can spread out from the rest of the world to there. I mean, we have not fully accomplished this even in our time, right? The whole world, even starting from Rome, still has not been fully accomplished. But in this book of Acts, we will see that what we want need to be focusing on here is not this restoration of Israel, but we need to be focusing on what we need to be doing in the meantime, and that is taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Ben Witherington, Witherington observed this, like the passing of the mantle from Elijah to Elisha. Acts 1 points to the passing of Jesus' power and authority to his witnesses. Christ's ascension, when he went up into the clouds, was in some way saying, well, I'm, I'm gone now, I'm physically not here, I'm sending you a helper, but now it's on you. Now it's your turn. And when they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Now we, we're probably right that we know that the white robes aren't, it's not really about being white, it's more about their glory and their transcendence. We don't really know who the two are. And I've heard quite a few theories, and I'm just going to give one idea that I read. One thought is, there were two people, once again, to have two witnesses to what was happening. And the two is symbolic of proving it with two witnesses. They may not be, we don't know, doesn't say. But I, that was one idea I'd heard. I've heard many theories of who the two might be, whether they're angels or whether they're Moses or whatever. You know, I, I, we don't know. And so that's, that's one. So he goes up, he goes up in heaven, and, the, and he's with those the two robes, verse 11, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. What is the... People say to him, why are you looking up here? There's stuff to do. 
stuff to do. Jesus will come back one day in the same way that he came in the clouds. This is why I would argue some sort of symbolic coming back. I mean, if coming back the same way he came is some sort of mystical symbolism, like, I mean, why we kind of bother? Why don't we just like mystically symbolize everything? I mean, it seems pretty clear to me that he goes up in the clouds and he's supposed to be coming back the same way. So that would seem like coming from the sky in the clouds, right? And so this has always been a challenge of those who want to deny the Bible, oftentimes the literal ascension of Christ or the literal return of Christ is denied when they're denying miracles. I'm like, you're welcome to deny them if you want. You should just try not being a Christian then because why would you believe in something if you're used to deny what is so clearly said by the faith? So the... I'd like us to think about this this morning. Sometimes in our life we think, you know, what's, what's my purpose as a believer? What's the, what's the big picture purpose? What's the big picture purchase, purpose? Is it to worship God? Is it to witness? Is it to read his word? Is it, you know, we, we got a, lot of, we got a lot, of, lot, of, lot of things we think about, and I'd like you to think about this this morning. While sort of basking in the glory of God is good and fine. While meditating in his presence is a great thing. What is it when that when Jesus ascends into heaven, the disciples are told, why are staring and looking into heaven. Shouldn't they have just basked in his glory, enjoyed this last time where they, they were with him? The message is, now it's time to go do something. If you say, am I doing my overall calling of what God has for me? I'd say, if you're not doing anything, you're not. You're not. So spending time with God, meditating, having some sort of, con you know, connecting, singing or whatever, all go good. I don't have anything bad about any of those things. Just saying, if you're not doing anything, you know, the disciples, when they had to go do something, like had to like get up out of the chair, probably had to like walk somewhere, like had to physically do something. You're not doing anything. You're not doing what God wants us to do. And the book of Acts, as we continue on, is a stories after story after story of people doing things. And I hope as we go through these stories, they will inspire us to not just stand there and stare up at heaven, but do something. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for this morning. We thank you that we can worship you. We thank you for those that graduated and the hard work that's gone into it. It's, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of dedication and oftentimes we can think there's something else that we should be doing with our time. And Lord, sometimes it's that way in our Christian walk that you know maybe there's something else that we should be doing with our time. Lord, I just hope we would remember that there's nothing better we can do with our lives than serve you. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to be servants. Make us servants of you.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.